Father, you are the Lord of hosts, the armies of heaven. You command countless angels whose power far surpasses even our imaginations. You are the God of all the earth, and yet you desire to meet with us, to have a relationship with us. I mean, what, what are we that we should enjoy not only your attention, but your love? and your care. Father, we, we bow before you this morning, and we just rest in the reality that you've invited us to know you, that you've invited us to be in relationship with you, and that you have made it possible for us to do so, not because of the works of righteousness that we've done, but according to the mercy uh, of your character and according to the work of your Son who shed his blood on our behalf. Thank you so much, Father. We, we worship and praise you. Father, we thank you for uh, Don and Rita and the example that they've set to us of faithfulness uh, and the way that their marriage has, has shown just a little bit of a glimpse of the faithful love that you have for your people. That's what it's designed to do. And so we thank you for them and we pray that today would be a wonderful day for them. Father, we lift up our family members, the Lindleys as they grieve Brother Jason. And um, we ask that you would be the God of all comfort to them. I pray that in their grief that, uh, that you would pour out your hope and that we would all be able to join together, weeping with one another, but not in despair, knowing that you have uh, redeemed and rescued your son, your, your child, uh, and welcomed him into your arms. Lord, we, we pray that you would uh, just pour out your grace into their family and work through this uh, to, to your glory and for their good. And then, Father, we do pray for Pastor Guy as he travels. Lord, I pray that you would keep him safe and healthy and that the fruit that uh, resulted from the ministry that he was able to uh, participate in in Cameroon would, would remain and grow and multiply in that region for your glory. And then, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, <clears throat> God, I pray that you would please, by your mercy and grace, pull us out of this way of thinking that you're like us, because you're not like us. Your word is powerful, thoroughly true, completely wise. And Lord, while we may be able to ignore this or that that somebody else on this earth might say, may we never ignore anything that you say. Lord, may we never follow the example of a King Saul who obeyed partially. And Lord, when you expose those areas of life where we have been partially obedient and all the way disobedient, I pray that you would give us the grace to repent and to enjoy your merciful forgiveness. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The city was eerily quiet. Instead of the bustle of the market and the braying of camels, nothing could be heard except the ravens patrolling the city dump. Most of the women and children had fled days ago, their family's treasures strapped to their back or the back of a beast of burden following behind them into the wilderness. 
The men stayed behind, soaking the thatch on the roofs, stacking firewood, sharpening blades, rationing grain and dried meat. Of course, they knew there was little use. And those men who cared more about reality than they feared being called cowards had followed along with the women and the children out of the city. The remaining men took turns watching from the walls, even though not a single enemy soldier was visible to them. The thousands of tiny columns of campfire smoke bore witness to an insurmountable threat just over the crest of a nearby hill. The scouts had told them the grim news. There were tens of thousands of foot soldiers camping in the valley less than a mile away, a sea of men fasting and praying, preparing for holy war, poised to strike and thirsty for blood. Finally, in the stillness, the watchmen heard a single cry of command, followed by a muffled tremor of earth and the dull hum of 200,000 feet slamming into the ground a half a mile away. Moments later, a cloud of dust rose on the horizon. Then the men themselves crested the hill, a continuous line of black and gray stretching out before them, a moving wall of inevitable death. The scene I just described may as well be the siege of a Kurdish village about to be overrun by the forces of the Islamic State in 2014. Or or maybe you pictured in your mind's eye a maneuver taking place during the Third Crusade or one of countless other conflicts in the Middle East throughout the ages. But today we're going to find that that vast army poised to overthrow a walled city to slaughter all of its inhabitants with the edge of the sword, to topple its temples and crush its art and artifacts to powder, was not a cohort of Islamic terrorists or a company of bloodthirsty crusaders. What I just described was the ancient Near Eastern city of Amalek just moments before it was attacked and destroyed by the armies of the God of Israel. Today's sermon text is found in 1 Samuel 14, 47 through 15, 35. I'd ask you to turn there, and we'll read a portion of that text together in just a moment. But I want to warn you that the God that we see depicted in this passage is not going to sit well with some of you. He won't be appealing from the standpoint of the 21st century. In fact, it's passages like this one that most Christians hope you don't bring up when they're inviting you to make Jesus a part of your life. It's kind of one of those things that we save for the fine print later on, after we've made the sale, so to speak. But actually, if you're willing to have a teachable spirit and really listen to what this passage teaches, you're going to find that even the sharp edges of the character of God are wonderfully good. And if you're willing to hear it, passages like the one we're about to read tell you something you need to know about the God of the Bible, that he is no joke, no pushover, no lightweight, but a mighty warrior who demands the complete fealty of his generals, destroys his enemies, who grieves over the disobedience of his covenant people. Would you join me now? We're we're not going to read the entire sermon text, but I do want to read beginning in 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. So let's 
read that together. Uh, Whoops, I'm not there. 1 Samuel 15, uh, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Liam. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from, the, from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Today's passage is the final chapter in what you might call the book of Saul. Actually, we're going to leave you hanging after this week until the fall uh, when we'll get into the next installment of 1 Samuel. But here with Saul, God has had enough. After this event, he's going to invest in another king, a completely different family dynasty. This is it for Saul. And as tragic as that reality might be, if you've been following along for the last several months, this event comes as no surprise. This is the way it's been for Saul. He's once again unwilling to understand God on God's terms. He's unwilling to live in complete obedience. Unwilling to care about anything but the way he looks to everybody else. And from the standpoint of ancient Near Eastern culture, Saul looks pretty good. The end of chapter 14, which we didn't read uh, for the sake of time, it describes in summary fashion many of Saul's successes. Uh, he had learned from some of his earlier leadership bungles, and he had achieved visible victories against his enemies. His family was impressive. His, uh, the finest Israelite warriors had attached themselves to him. He was taking his place among the great ones of the earth. Saul continued to be the king who looked good. But in chapter 15, once again, he is tested, and once again, he fails the test. Uh, but there are three lessons available to us today. Saul isn't going to learn them, but we can learn them. So consider with me lesson number one. Here's lesson number one. The word of the Lord is gravely serious. The word of the Lord is gravely serious. Notice the preponderance of language having to do with speaking and hearing or listening in this passage. Listen to verse 1. Listen to the words of the Lord. Instead, later we see that Saul listened to the voice of the people. That's what he tells Samuel. He rejected the word of the Lord. In other words, this passage underscores the grave seriousness of God's word and our response to it. Actually, just in the first three verses, if you, if you read verses one through three, that tells us almost, as difficult as, as, as they are to swallow, it tells us almost everything we need to know about how serious God takes his word. I mean, think about it. God actually tells Saul to gather an army and destroy every Amalekite, man, woman, and child, and every animal that belongs to them. Just kill everything, anything that breathes. Just put it to the edge of the sword, devoted to destruction. Uh, that, that's a technical phrase that means everything and everyone belongs to God and gets destroyed. And, and even any of the precious metals that are found, they're immediately put into the tabernacle treasury. No one gets any of the spoils of war, not a shred of clothing, not the tiniest earring, not a cute little lamb, not so much as a strip of bacon left over from that morning's breakfast. Everything gets devoted to destruction. Nothing gets used. Nothing gets eaten. No one survives. Well, wow. I mean, what did the Amalekites do to deserve that? I know it might not ring a bell for you, but Saul, remember Saul's job, according to the book of Deuteronomy, as king, is partially to write for himself a copy of the law of God, the first five books of the Bible, and to study it and read it every single day. That's part of his job. So he should have known about this. Uh, the Israelites first encountered the Amalekites all the way back in Exodus 17 as they were leaving Egypt and uh, traversing the wilderness. For some reason, the Amalekites felt that that was a good time for them to attack Israel. Maybe they felt that they were vulnerable, uh, that they could just plunder everything that they had. 
And yet the Israelites prevailed through the prayers of Moses. And God said, I'm not going to forget this. Now you might say, wait a second, that was hundreds of years before King Saul. I mean, isn't it time to let bygones be bygones and, and let this go? But God apparently wasn't willing to move on. He had told, remember what he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The one who blesses you, I will what? The one who curses you, I'm going to what? He meant it. He meant what he said. The one who curses you, I will curse. In other words, anybody who messed with God's covenant people, whether it was the Egyptians or the Amalekites or the Midianites or anybody else, anybody who tried to go after the people that God had sworn to protect, they were going to be skewered by the wrath of God. And even though it was hundreds of years later, that's what was happening here in this passage. This is an example of the jealous, burning, covenant faithfulness of God. He will do whatever it takes to protect his covenant people. So what did Amalek do wrong? They broke the covenant. In other words, they failed to take seriously the word of the Lord, the commitment that he had made to his people, and now they're going to pay. And I realize this is one of the parts of the Bible that you might find objectionable. You might even find it repulsive. How, how can this be? A, a lot of people reach the conclusion, I can't trust the Bible. I can't trust the God that's written about here because of the slaughter of these seemingly innocent people, and it seems like that's what's going on here. And, you know, of course, we could talk about that for hours, and many people have. You need to know, I'm not going to do that, by the way. You do need to know, however, that the most reputable biblical scholars argue that the language presented here in 1 Samuel 15 and in the book of Joshua and in other places in Scripture is an example of a kind of hyperbolic ancient Near Eastern like saber-rattling trash talk that was common of the day, that everybody living at the time would have recognized as hyperbolic language. In other words, spoken purposely to exaggerate the truth, not to, not to lie or be deceptive, but to uh, just kind of make a, a rhetor rhetorical flourish. Uh, apologist Matthew Flanagan, for example, argue, argues this way at length in a book called Come, Let Us Reason, in which various authors tackle some of the reasons people reject the God of the Bible. Uh, he compares it to the way that we talk about sports nowadays. You know, how did your basketball game go last week? Oh, it was great. We slaughtered them. We mopped the floor with them. Really? Wow. That's against the rules in basketball, I think, you know? But no, what do we mean? We mean we, it went well. <laughs> we won. Decisively. Uh, nobody thinks you're lying when you do that. You just, you're, it's the rhetoric of, of, of sports. And, uh, and maybe that's the case. Maybe it's true that this is the type of language that we read here in a passage like 1 Samuel 15. People who know a lot more about these things than I do seem to think that that's the case. However, uh, by the way, there is good evidence in the Bible to support that. Uh, if you read through 1 Samuel just a few years later, the Amalekites are going on raids again, and, D and David has to fight against these guys, so it seems clear that many of them survived. And so it's quite possible, but listen, regardless of whether this is hyperbolic language or not, we cannot escape the ruthlessness of God's warrior nature on display in this chapter. I mean, this is the God that we're dealing with, a God who is bringing up something that happened hundreds of years before, and he's saying, go and put everybody to the edge of the sword. 
This is the God that we're dealing with. Like, put yourself in Saul's sandals. He's dealing with a God who violently enacts justice against those who violated his word hundreds of years before. God is so ruthlessly committed to his word that he goes to war with anybody who messes with it. That's the God that Saul is dealing with. In other words, Saul had no reason to think that God would be any less exacting with him. So friends, what I'm saying is that the word of the Lord is a serious, serious thing. It's gravely serious. God means business when he says what he wants to say. And he expects us to respond appropriately. Look at what happens when we don't. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might, be, you might not like this. I understand. But I need to tell you, this is one of the things that you're going to have to reckon with in your journey of examining the Christian faith. If there is any part of you that is saying right now, well, he has no right to do that, then, then you're nowhere close to being a Christian in your heart. You see, that impulse is the very core of what is wrong with us and our relationship with God. That's the whole problem. We say, God, who do you think you are? I mean, that is rebellion. That is the antithesis of faith. It's one thing to say, God, this is hard for me to read. God, this is hard for me to understand. God, I'm really struggling with this. Would you help me? That attitude is fine and healthy and good. It's another thing to say, God, you know, I, I just don't like this. I can't trust a God who would do something like this. That, that what you're doing is you're saying, I am morally superior to God. That is, the, that is an anti-Christian way of thinking. and That's pride and hubris of the first order. And if that's what you're thinking, you are not a Christian. I'm sorry. Not in a biblical sense, regardless of what you say you are. And I would, I would just urge you to recognize the absolute authority of God over every molecule in every part of the universe. He is not... He is not a megalomaniac usurping illegitimate authority. He is the creator of everyone and everything. He has the right to do whatever he wants with everything that exists, and none of us can question what he does. He has the rights over all of it, and he's not accountable to us. And even though we might not understand, we need to trust that what he's doing is right and good and just, that he alone has the ability to exact justice without destroying the innocent along the way. Amen. The point is, though, that, our, that God, the God of the Bible, our God, takes his word so, so seriously. Here's my question. Do you? Do you recognize that when God says something, when he makes a promise, when he issues a command, when he utters a truth, he means it? This past Friday evening, we... Uh, hosted a handful of people here for, for secret church. Uh, it's just six hours of drinking from a fire hose and, and learning theology and biblical truth uh, from 6 p.m. to midnight. And uh, we're all just sitting there just kind of taking in this teaching on the identity of human beings as create creatures in God's image. And and as uh, David Platt, the, the teacher, was sort of walking through the ethical entailments of those theological truths with regard to sexuality or reproductive ethics, and uh, including how we deal with things like infertility and uh, our own gender identity, and, and, and it just sort of made me wonder, do we who claim to follow Jesus even try to discern what the Word of God says with regard to these things before we make big life decisions? 
Do we take God's word seriously on the big decisions of life? God identifies with his word. We, said, we saw that in, in uh, our call to worship. He exalts above all things his name and his word. He takes it very seriously, but when we have a big decision to make about the person we're dating or about fertility treatments or about the kind of work we're doing in our career, do we love God enough? Do we fear God enough to conform our actions and our decisions to the things that he said? I have another question. If God takes his word seriously, then don't you think you should know what he said? Don't you think your children ought to know what he said? My kids, uh, like many of yours, are in the middle of preparing to take these STAR tests. And I try not to offend people unnecessarily at church, so I don't, but I, don't, I think I'm on safe ground when I say this. The STAR tests are just the worst, you know? I think we, we all agree. Everyone is anxious about these tests. The kids are worried they won't do well. The teachers are terrified. The administrators are, are shaking, you know, they're scared to death. What if the kids don't do well in the STAR test? And I'm not trying to take any cheap shots here, but it's just too obvious to me. Like, when was the last time we were as anxious for our kids to know the Word of God as we are that they know slope-intercept formula and the difference between, you know, a verb and a noun? It is way more important for our kids to know what God has said in his word than for them to understand the difference between a rhombus and a parallelogram. Am I right? Every week I teach Awana. I spend time with your kids. I do. And, And we go into God's word and I teach them. And I have to say, we do have work to do, folks. These kids are smart. They're sharp. But so many times, they don't don't know how to look up things in their Bible. They don't know what the Bible says. And you know why? It's because mom and dad don't know. They they don't talk about it. And you know why mom and dad don't talk about it? It's because they don't know. And you know why you don't know? Not trying to be mean. It's because it's not important to you. You know lots of things about lots of things. It has literally never been easier to know our Bibles than it is today. You can go on the internet and search dozens of Bible versions. You can literally teach yourself Greek and Hebrew biblical languages. You can lose yourself in trustworthy books. In our very own church library, it wouldn't cost you a dime. You just walk past the room, and you walk into the room and pull the book out and read it. So, so like Saul, we don't have an excuse to say, well, I just didn't know. That's because we don't value it. Do you know what God has said? Do you take his word seriously? That's lesson number one. That's where Saul tripped up in the first place. He didn't take God's word seriously. Let's not make that mistake. Lesson number one, God's word is gravely serious. Lesson number two, partial obedience to the word is full-on idolatry. Partial obedience to the word is full-on idolatry. Let me show you what I mean. God tells Saul, devote Amalek to destruction. So Saul gets started. He musters an army, huge army. He dismisses the Kenites. These are people who had lived in harmony with, with the Israelites for generations. If you do a study on these people, you'll know uh, this is an a, a, a ethnic group that is actually related to Moses' father-in-law. 
and they've been at peace with God's people, so he gives them safe passage out of the field of battle. He attacks the city of Amalek and absolutely decimates them. We're told he gets the victory from Havilah as far as Shur. That is a massive area of engagement. But then notice verse 9. Saul and the people spared Agag the king and the best of the livestock. So Saul killed a bunch of people, but he kept the king alive, and he, kept the, and he parades him around on this victory tour, and he keeps the choicest animals so that he can throw a party for himself in Gilgal. I know he says that he's, he's done that to sacrifice to the Lord, but think about what a sacrifice actually is. Part of that animal gets burned up on the altar, but a lot of it gets eaten. You say, so what? At least he won. It's true that if you or I were in charge, we might be thinking, hey, mission accomplished. These animals won't last long. Maybe King Agag's friends can provide us a hefty ransom. Sounds pretty good because we aren't thinking like God. God is not happy. Look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. There's that emphasis on the word of the Lord again. And he says, I regret that I've made Saul king. I'm grieved that I've made Saul king. Well, he, he obeyed partially. Why not just cut him a break? Maybe a slap on the wrist and move on. At least he did most of what you said. But, but here's what God knows that you and I might overlook if we were in that similar position. Now, I'll put it in the words of commentator Bill Arnold. He says, partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. Let me read that one more time. Partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. You see, Saul doesn't care a thing about obeying God. He's using God. Defeating the Amalekites makes him look good to the people that he's leading. It's a huge win politically for Saul, and that's what he cares about. He wants to look good. That's why he saved the king's life. That's why he saved the choice portions of the flock, because those things were advantageous to him in solidifying his political authority. Sure, he partially obeyed, but that partial obedience was just a, a thinly veiled cover for the fact that he really wanted to serve himself and follow his own agenda. He wasn't really obeying at all. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, it should, because Saul is back to his old tricks. He continually refuses to understand and appreciate the character of God. You remember back a few weeks ago to chapter 13? He did exactly the same thing. He disobeyed God's commands, and then he tried to cover it up with this appearance of piety and religious ritual. This is what we do. And why is it that he doesn't get it? Why does Saul keep doing this? Samuel sums it up in verses 22 and 23. Listen to this again. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Did you catch that last word? What Saul is doing is like idolatry. It's like Saul is fashioning this grotesque mischaracterization of God, and he's setting it up in a shrine, and he's saying, my God's like this. It's like Saul constantly wants to domesticate and control and manipulate the divine, to negotiate, to go back and forth with the God of all the earth. Like He treats the God of the universe exactly like all of those other pagan kings, his colleagues would treat their pagan gods. Actually, Saul had a very specific idol that you might call the fear of man. He tells Samuel, verse 24, it was their voice he heeded, not God's. 
even at the very end of the passage, uh, after all this, I mean, this, this dramatic rejection of, of Saul's kingship, you know what he cares about? How, does, how do I look right now? He begs Samuel, please go worship the Lord with me so that nobody knows that anything is wrong. Saul bowed down before an idol called public opinion, and it led to his demise. Friends, do you know why you disobey? Why you do 90% of what God says to do, but not the other 10%? It's not because you didn't know. It's not because of the way you were raised. That's part of it, but that's not the real reason. It's not because your environment that you live in. That may not have made it any easier, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is, is because of idolatry. It's because you worship an idol in your heart. Did you know that you have a little shrine in the secret places of your heart where you bow down to pride or lust or pleasure or comfort? Maybe you worship the same false deity Saul loved to worship too. You love the praise of men. And you're willing to worship that God instead of the God of all the earth. You like to look good. And as long as that's in place, you're not concerned with what God sees. Because you care about what everybody else sees. Like, why do you avoid adultery, but you don't avoid pornography? Isn't it because you want to worship the idol of pleasure, but you also want to worship the idol of the opinions of men, and you don't want to look bad in front of your friends? You give when people are watching, but not when they aren't, because you're worshiping the opinions of others. This is why. You maintain membership in the church, but you don't actually submit to the authority of the congregation because your priority is keeping up appearances. You're nice to your kids in public, but behind closed doors, you're, you're vindictive and you lose your temper on the daily. Why? Because your God is the opinions of your neighbors, right? And keep in mind, Saul was God's chosen king. If God were going to be patient and kind and long-suffering with anybody, it would be Saul. And yet this pattern of partial obedience leads to the most severe discipline. God rejects him as the king. It's not just that his son or his grandson won't get to be the king. It's that he's done being the king. You'll see that as we read on in, in 1 Samuel coming this fall. And what I'm saying is that if the word of the Lord is as serious as he presents it to be, then partial obedience puts us in, in, in great peril. Like if, if this is how you're living... Picking and choosing which of God's commands apply to you, slicing away what's inconvenient, then you need to repent. You need to confess that that's what you've been doing and, and ask God to forgive you and to, and to guide you and cleanse you and, and bring you back to a place of full obedience. This is what Paul talks about in the passage that Mark read earlier in the service. This is a, 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 a wonderful example of someone saying, we were obeying partially. And then Paul confronts them, and it gave Paul grief to do that. But then he said, but I, was, I wasn't grieved for very long because you actually repented, and you had godly grief. Worldly grief is going to bring pain, but you actually really repented. Saul doesn't do that at all. And it's in Saul's response to Samuel's rebuke that we learn our third lesson. Notice with me that not only is the word of the Lord gravely serious and not only is partial obedience really just full-on idolatry, but in the third place, false repentance grieves the heart of God. False repentance grieves the heart of God. Notice the very specific progression in Saul's response to Samuel's rebuke in verses 13 through 31. If you read through this passage, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
He actually does five things. First of all, notice how he initially denies that he's done anything wrong. That's usually our first recourse too, isn't it? No, I haven't done anything wrong. I performed the commandment of the Lord, he says. What is he doing? He's betting that no one's going to know, that Samuel's just going to let it slide because we're all celebrating the victory, and that God, well, he might see it, but he's not going to care. So he denies it. But then that doesn't work, so he shifts to tactic number two. He defends what he chose to do in verse 15. Like, hey, Samuel, I'm doing you and God a favor. Like, I, yes, I technically, I didn't totally obey, but here's the thing. I saved the animals for the sacrifice. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, God loves these sacrifices. Why don't you take one of the best ones for your own personal sacrifice and have a little feast afterwards? And Samuel has to shout over him, Stop! No, this isn't good. You disobeyed. You pounced on the spoil. And so Saul employs a third tactic. He can't deny it. Defending it didn't work, so now he tries to deflect the blame. Verses 21 and following. I I did obey the Lord. I did. The people, though, the people, they rescued the animals, and they wanted to make a sacrifice, and I guess I'm just too nice to them. What can you do? Does that sound familiar to you? I mean, Saul really reminds us, doesn't he, of Adam in the book of Genesis? God, it's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. Saul says, it was the people. Samuel's not having it. He launches into poetry. To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. So Saul turns to tactic number four. He downplays his sin. You're right. I did sin. I listened to the people. I mean... You, you, get, you understand, I'm a king, I have to listen to what the people say, this is an issue that we all have, please pardon my sin, return with me, verse 25, that I may worship the Lord, like I'm good if you're good, can we just move on and, and we'll worship together, nobody will know? After denying, defending, deflecting, and downplaying, in the final analysis, Saul just doesn't get it. Samuel walks away and Saul grabs him, desperate, please don't let the people see that you and I aren't on the same page, still more concerned with what people think than with the fact that he's just lost his favored place in the kingdom of God, more interested in saving face than in a restored relationship with his creator. And friends, this is what we really need to be on guard against, the crocodile tears, the false repentance, the mere remorse and regret, the penitential feelings of guilt that never lead to true repentance. Beware. Do do you know what I'm talking about? You ever deny your sin? Defend it? Deflect the blame on your parents or your ex-wife or whoever it is? Downplay it? Then what I'm saying is that you don't get it either. And what don't you get? You don't get God. On the one hand, it's like we think God won't see it, God won't remember, like if I can just spin this the right way, God will see it from my perspective, like we think we can pull a fast one on God, but on the other hand, it's like we believe deep down inside that there's no real remedy for sin at all, so like the best thing I can do, I've got this thing, sin, I don't know what to do with it, so I guess I'll just push it under the rug and hide it. In fact, when we come back to 1 Samuel in the fall, this is going to be the theme of the rest of Saul's tragic life. Over and over again, he shows an inability to seek real forgiveness through repentance. He's always trying to move past his mistakes instead of facing them head on and dealing with them directly. Eventually, God will forget, I hope. 
But deep down inside, you know that's not how it works. I mean, this is God we're, we're talking about here. Have you forgotten what you did? How is God going to forget? What is it about God that makes you think you would just drop it? This is the pathetic response of every human being apart from the Spirit's work. This is exactly what Adam did after he sinned. What did he do? He sinned, and immediately, what, is, what does the Bible tell us he did? He went and he hid from the Lord God. Ridiculous. I mean, how do you hide from God? Adam knew he, really, he couldn't really hide, but he thought there was no other way, no real way to deal with what he had done. But what we need to do, and what I need to know is that if I, if I stop denying, if I stop defending, if I stop deflecting blame, if I stop downplaying the sin that separates me from my creator, and I bring that sin to him and say, God, I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm not going to run anymore. I'm not going to try to get out of it anymore. Here's what I've done, and you have every right to absolutely destroy me for it, and I'm completely at your mercy. This is totally up to you. I'm just asking, because of who you are, would you please take it away? Forgive me, please. Then God is waiting to forgive. This is the difference between Saul and King David, as we'll see later in the, in the book. King David did some gruesome things. He had some wicked things, but the difference is Psalm 51. He was broken over his sin. He repented. David didn't dissemble or explain any of it away. He just said, you're right, I've sinned. I've earned your wrath. Please forgive me, not because I deserve it, but because you are a kind and gracious God. And here's what we need to know. When we don't do that, when we choose to wallow instead of coming to God for cleansing, listen, that grieves God's heart. Did you catch the deeply emotional language in verse 11? What does God say? to Samuel. He says, I am grieved. Uh, This is the same exact phrasing, by the way, that appears in Genesis chapter 6 when God talks about the people that he had made right before he sends a flood. He says, I am grieved that I made human beings. Because when I look out upon the earth and find that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. It pains me. It grieves me. I'm deeply emotionally hurt that I made mankind. This is true, yes, of God. Later in our passage, we find in the very last verse that Samuel, both Samuel and God are grieving for Saul as if Saul is dead. Folks, it's a grief to God when his creatures, when, when we rebel and then run from him when we have the chance to repent. He desires you to turn back to him. To stop running away, to stop hardening your heart against the conviction of the Spirit. And when you don't, he grieves. Some of you understand this a little bit because your own children have grown up and they've run away from the way that they were raised and you know the pain that that can cause. And you're angry about it, sure, but you're grieved. It's like a part of you died. Saul's never going to come back from it. He's never going to repent, tragically. He's never going to get it. And the sad truth is, Millions have followed in his his path. But it doesn't have to be that way for you. Jesus tells the story of a man who had two sons. One of the sons rebelled. He went off with his dad's money. He partied till it was gone and was living in a gutter. And when the day finally came that he recognized what had happened and he stopped denying it and he stopped defending it and he stopped deflecting it and he stopped downplaying it and he really repented 
and he went back to his father because he was desperately in need. You know what happened? The father ran toward him. He rejoiced. He celebrated. And that son, that son who had left home in order to party, he enjoyed the, the biggest celebration of his life. Amen. Who had went and spent his money, his dad's money on a cool new clothes. He got a beautiful new robe. When the pleasures of sin floated away like a mist and all that was left was the pain and the judgment, the father was ready to receive his repentant child again. So friend, will you stop denying the evil and the disobedience that have polluted your life and destroyed your relationship with the creator? Would you, will you stop, please, stop defending yourself? Stop deflecting the blame onto your environment and your boss and the politicians and everybody else and, and just own it. And as painful as it is for your own sake, please stop downplaying it. Everybody does it. Can we just move on? Don't do that. Do what Saul refused to do. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Really repent. Turn back, bow the knee to the fearsome one, the one whose wrath burns in holy justice against our sin, the one whose loyal love demands our devotion, the one whose mercy is to a thousand generations but who will by no means clear the guilty. Say, God, I've done it. Yes, that was me. I've broken faith with you. I've, I've rejected you. I've spurned you. Please forgive me. And believe in the one whose kindness and justice met together at the cross of Jesus Christ, who poured out his wrath and his anger against sin in the body of his own son, and who gives the righteous deeds of Christ to those who believe. God's word is serious. Partial obedience is perilous. False repentance is grievous. But to those who humble themselves, he's kind. And he's ready to welcome you with open arms. Would you bow with me now in this moment of response to the Lord? Father, we, we've heard what your word has to say. We know it's serious. We know the consequences of rejecting it are so, so heavy, far heavier than any of us could bear. And so in this moment, while your spirit causes the truths of your word to rest upon our hearts, I pray that you would not allow us to be distracted, that you would repulse the strategies of the enemy at this moment. And Father, I pray for any in this room who maybe have a veneer of religion, who obey in part, but who deep down inside know that that's just a cover-up for a heart that's in rebellion against you. And Father, I pray that today, today, this moment, that you would break it apart and that you would cause the new birth to take place in every heart that's in this room and within the sound of my voice. Father, the mysterious workings of your spirit are beyond our comprehension and our vision and our ability to see, but I, I trust and know that you're working, and I pray that you would work today. Father, I pray that each one of us who has been convicted of partial obedience would run to you and find your open arms, the loving Father who welcomes his rebellious child. Friends, as you're sitting there and your head is bowed and it's just you and God, 
let me just plead with you. Today, when you hear his voice, don't reject it. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites, like Saul. But receive, as painful as it is, the convicting message that you're a sinner, but you can be saved by the grace of God. I'll invite you in in just a moment here as we respond together in song that that you would take this time to call upon the name of the Lord and and to believe in the name of the Son of God and to stop running from Him and to run toward Him and find His welcome. Would you stand with me now? Let's all take a moment to respond to the Lord. Maybe you want to respond by singing along with our musicians. Maybe you need to respond by kneeling right there at your seat and bowing the knee before your God. Maybe you want to come and pray with somebody here in the front. Uh, maybe you feel like, I need to grab a friend who knows the Bible and uh, leave the room and, and go and study God's word and find how I can become a forgiven follower of Christ today. But listen, please don't let this moment go. Please don't put it away. Don't harden your hearts. Let's respond to God's word in obedience and faith together as we sing.